Hi, welcome back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. You know what I realized we never do anymore? What don't we do? We never say what we do for the new listeners. What do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, we're the horrors. We're a feminist podcast that discusses horror movies and the role of women and gender dynamics within the film. Sometimes we do themes. Most of the time we stick to movies themselves. This time is one of those times where we're sticking to one movie, but it's a big movie. It is a big movie. It's an Academy Award winner, actually. Multi-Academy Award winner film. Sticking with our Accountable Power Hour theme, which we like to do sometimes. (laughs) This is Silence of the Lambs from 1991. So getting into our ladies, of course, we have the Jodie Foster starring as Clarice Starling. She's in one million things. If you look at her wiki page, she's in shows, films, plays, the works. She's an icon. She's definitely part of my sexual identity development. (laughs) I love her in Panic Room. I was telling Elise about Panic Room before we started recording. Her and Kristen Stewart in one movie feels like a catastrophic gay event to me. (laughs) I'm so happy it exists. Next, we have Brooke Smith as Catherine Martin. So besides this film, she's best known for her roles as Dr. Erica Hahn on the ABC medical drama series Grey's Anatomy and as Sheriff Jane Green on the A&E horror series Bates Motel. I couldn't stand either of her characters in either of those works. I was about to say, and you're avid fans of both shows. I am avid fans of both shows. <laughs> and she plays inseparable characters in everything because I can't stand her in this either. Really? I'm a big fan of her. Well, you know what? Because I saw a lot of myself in her. That's true. I mean, Except like she was way more badass than me. Next, we have Diane Baker as U.S. Senator Ruth Martin. She is Catherine Martin's mother. And this actress, Diane Baker, is also in One Million Things. She has been acting since 1958, so her credentials are also really long. And then we also have Casey Lemons as Ardelia Mapp. And she is a film director, screenwriter, and actress. Most recently, she directed Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. You know what she was also in? What? Candyman. Oh my God. Yes. Because I remember I was like, Casey Lemons, what do I know her name? Yeah, she is the other detective or the other grad student. What was her name in Candyman? She is Bernadette in Candyman. Bernadette. Yeah, she plays opposite to Helen. She's like her co-grad student in Candyman. And because I remember her name. I remember Whitney Houston said when I danced with somebody. And I remember noting that she was in Silence of the Lambs. And I'm like, where is she in Silence of the Lambs? She's right here. She is right here. She should win an award for being a supportive friend. I love her in all of these roles. (laughs) (laughs) Always a very supportive friend. Okay, so getting into some pre-plot trivia about the movie, of course, from IMDb. This film was directed by Jonathan Demme and written by Ted Talley, adapted from Thomas Harris's 1988 novel of the same name. The film won five Academy Awards, Best Actor to Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress to Jodie Foster, Best Director to Jonathan Demme, Best Adapted Screenplay to Ted Talley, and Best Picture. It was also nominated for Best Film Editing and Best Sound Mixing. I think it's one of three or four films in history to win the big five, which is Best Actress, Actor, Director, Screenplay, and Picture. I think there's only two or three other films that have ever won all five. One of them is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Wow. And then I forget what the other one is. It's something older. Speaking of which, at 24 minutes and 52 seconds of screen time, Anthony Hopkins' performance is the second shortest to win an Academy Award for Best Actor in a Leading Role. 
In terms of percentage of runtime, Hopkins is the shortest as he only appears in 21% of the film. That reminds me of A Nightmare on Elm Street because he's only in collectively like 13 minutes of that oh, yeah, film. Freddy Krueger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Robert England. Yeah, he's only in like a very short amount of that movie, but obviously makes a huge impact. When Ted Talley was writing the screenplay for this movie, he suggested Jodie Foster for the role of Clarice Starling. Foster had been lobbying hard for the part, but when Jonathan Dem was hired to direct, he wanted Michelle Pfeiffer instead. Pfeiffer turned it down because Orion Pictures wasn't willing to pay the $2 million for which she asked. Dem then agreed to meet Foster. He hired her after only one meeting because he said he could see her strength and determination for the part, and he felt that was perfect for Clarice. Some of the scenes were filmed in Bel Air, Ohio, which was the birthplace of Ted Levine, who plays Jamie Gum. In fact, during location scouting for the house in which Levine's character lives, a house being considered was not only in the town where the actor himself grew up, but it was literally next door to the house his high school girlfriend lived in. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I wasn't sure if this is the house they actually ended up going with, but it was one that was at least considered, and it's a wild coincidence. Finally, the pattern on the moth's back in the movie posters is not the natural pattern of the death's head hawk moth, which is what it's said to be. In fact, it is Salvador Dali's Envelopus Mors, a picture of seven naked women made to look like a human skull. You know where we also see that design? Oh, 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 The Descent? The Descent! Look at you making connections! (laughs) Fun fact, I have a death moth tattooed on me. I'm wearing a death moth tank top right now. (laughs) I am all decked out in the death moth attire. I own a death moth encased oh yeah you do and a shadow box yes gosh i got one for my birthday (laughs) it was a great gift Mm, people just know you well sometimes they do know me well (laughs) so let's get into it so we open in quantico virginia we are not on the set of criminal minds but we are at an fbi training academy we meet jodie foster running through the woods i wrote insert gay panic here because This image of Jodie Foster running through this obstacle course with sweat going through her crew neck sweatshirt was very influential for me as a coming of age gay person. Do you want to know a piece of pre-plot trivia? I would love to. Or during the plot trivia, rather? Yeah. So originally, this movie was supposed to open with Clarice Starling and a male FBI agent in the middle of a drug bust. They were supposed to burst into the room and make several arrests, and then the bust would be revealed as a training exercise. But Jodie Foster was able to convince the director to change the scene because she said it had been done so many times before. So she basically came up with this opening circuit and the director went with it. Of course, that drug bust training moment is used later, but this opening is her. And I'm honestly fairly certain that's how the second one opens. Oh. It opens on like an actual real drug bust that goes awry, which is funny that they kept that. Interesting. I know nothing about Hannibal other than it's the sequel. But otherwise, she is stopped in her exercise to be summoned to a Mr. Crawford's office mid-workout and through context clues of her walking throughout the campus, it's revealed to be an FBI academy. She enters the behavioral sciences wing to meet up with Crawford and looks in his office as she's waiting for him to see crime scene photos on a cork board chronicling the Buffalo Bill murders. And through these photos, we're seeing that there's a lot of dead women that are skinless 
There's a lot of women that have gone missing in this area of the Northeast. And then Crawford enters. He compliments Clarice's progress at the Academy and her work ethic and says that they're conducting a study interviewing several serial killers in custody to create a psychological profile that could assist them in other unsolved cases. And he goes on to tell Clarice about an uncooperative inmate that won't talk, Hannibal Lecter or Hannibal the Cannibal. He wants her to go interview him, give him a report on him and how he's acting ASAP. When Clarice asks about the urgency and if there's a connection between him and Buffalo Bill, Crawford just warns her to be safe, not let him get in her head, and not to tell him anything personal about herself. Next thing we know, Clarice Starling is on her way to this detention center to meet the Dr. Hannibal Lecter. She enters this state hospital and meets with Dr. Frederick Chilton. I hate this fucking guy. I know, but I love his name for the character. Correct. It kind of reminds me of not to be English teachery, but Chillingsworth in the Scarlet Letter. Mm. Like, ooh, that chill. So ice cold. So anyway, yeah, he's a hateable character. Honestly, in the first moments we see him with Clarice on screen, he's hitting on her. He calls her attractive. He asks if she's staying the night in the area. But he at least reveals more about why Clarice would have been chosen because she's Lecter's type. So through his dialogue, we're getting the sense that maybe she was baited into this job. Maybe it's not because she's such a star student after all, which is, of course, frustrating. But also, she probably knows that too because she's smart. So she's led to Hannibal Lecter down an elevator to the ground floor through a stony hallway. Before Chilton joins her to meet Hannibal Lecter, she mentions it might be a good idea that if Lecter hates Chilton so much that she go down alone. And he coldly responds that she might have mentioned that earlier to save him the trip down. So he's such a jerk. And she walks down the hallway alone to meet Hannibal Lecter. As she makes her way down the intimidating prison hall, of course, there are other prisoners around that are calling out to her. One of them, his name is Miggs, he yells out to her that, quote, I can smell your cunt. She totally ignores it, makes her way down to the end of the hall, and instead of bars over Hannibal Lecter's cell, we see strong glass with air holes. So Hannibal Lecter greets her warmly, asks to see her credentials. We get some creepy aspects as he's begging her to come closer, closer, closer. He calls out that she has a temporary ID so that she must not be real FBI. She confirms that she's a student and he seems mildly insulted by that. (laughs) But she flatters him by saying that she has a lot that she can learn from him and he can determine whether she's a worthy study, which seems to lighten him up and he invites her to sit down at the chair in front of his cell. A lot of these conversations are done through crazy close-up. Another fun piece of trivia is that he does not blink in this entire movie. Wow. He didn't want to blink. He wanted to come off very snake-like. So he does not blink in any shot that he is on camera. Like he is just staring very coldly straight ahead because he wanted to come off as intimidating as possible. And I think he does. Hannibal Lecter asks what Miggs said to her. And Clarice says, he said, I can smell your cunt. He's like, ah, I see. I myself cannot, which is just so fucking funny to me. It is really funny. But then he proceeds to sniff through his little air holes and create a whole scent profile of Clarice. Yeah, the skincare that she uses Mm -hmm. down to the type. Down to like the perfume she uses sometimes, but not today. She ends up redirecting the conversation by asking about his artwork 
through this, she ends up jumping the gun and asking him to fill out a questionnaire, but he calls out her tactics thus far. Being courteous and receptive to courtesy, telling the truth about Megs, but calls her segue ham-handed and is like, oh, you were doing so good. You should have just kept up there and says that Crawford must be busy with Buffalo Bill if he's recruiting help from the student body. Fucking yikes. And he's like, well, why do you think he removes their skins? Enthrall me with your acumen. She goes on to say, I think Buffalo Bill likes to take trophies from his victims. He's like, well, I didn't. And she's like, no, you ate yours, which seems to be calling him out on his shit. And that gets him to accept the questionnaire. And then goes into a whole fucking monologue that tears her to shreds. I have it. He says, you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube, a well-scrubbed, hustling rube with little taste. Do you know what a rube means? I don't. I Googled it. It's basically like kind of like a country girl. Got it. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. What is your father, dear? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the lamp? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in back seats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the FBI. Fun piece of trivia, in this scene, he imitates Clarice Starling's country accent, and that was improvised on the spot by Anthony Hopkins. But she responds strongly. She says, you see a lot, doctor, but are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about that? Why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Or maybe you're afraid to. And then comes one of the most infamous lines of the movie. Lecter responds with, A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. And then he hisses at her. And this was also improvised. He hissed at her as if he was sucking on soup, like slurping up soup. And he did this to startle Jodie Foster, which worked because she wasn't expecting it. He says, you fly back to school now, little starling. Fly, fly, fly away. So she goes to walk away, but ends up getting semen thrown on her by Miggs, who was pleasuring himself in the cell next to them as they spoke. So Hannibal Lecter calls her back, apologizes hurriedly, and says that he'll give her a chance for what she wants most, advancement. He tells her to look inside yourself and seek out an old patient of his, Miss Moffat, and tells her to go. So Clarice exits the building. She's shaken. She's trying not to cry. And then we get a flashback of a point of view of a young Clarice jumping into her father's arms as he's exiting a police car in the driveway. Her father was a policeman. She's later seen sobbing on her car. And that cuts very quickly to her flashing to a target practice, memorizing police codes as she runs, and studying newspapers on Hannibal Lecter. So you can tell that she is covering up some level of childhood trauma or trauma that she has with her father by trying to emulate him in some way by being a high-profile FBI agent. She then gets a call from Crawford who says that Miggs, the man who threw semen at her in the cell, is dead. Apparently, the night before, Lecter had been whispering to him and somehow that ended in Miggs's death. Meanwhile, Clarice continues to work more and more and more on this suggestion to look into a Mrs. Moffat, and she realizes it's more of a riddle than anything, which leads her to a rent storage lot where she has to go inside a garage to see if she can find anything in this storage unit. 
So she arrives at yourself storage, which is a fun little thing because she figures out that look inside yourself wasn't a ad at her, but it was a clue which she solved because I don't know if Hannibal Lecter is from Baltimore or if his accent was Baltimorean, but that's how she figured it out. She ends up breaking into it. I wrote Clarice is the butch I aspire to be because (laughs) while this man who operates a storage facility can't open it, she uses a car jack to open it just enough so she can shimmy underneath. And then with some very adequate forward planning says, oh, this is my name. If anything happens to me, call this field office. Like I just love the forward planning of a woman. So great. Meanwhile, you could not pay me enough to go into a dark, dank storage unit that hasn't been occupied since 1980 in a storm. But she does. She does it. So she's looking around and she finds a hearse, question mark. She finds a headless mannequin and a scrapbook on the inside. And as she lifts up a handkerchief, she finds a decapitated head in a jar. Cute. So cute. She ends up driving to the prison to meet with Dr. Lecter. She's like, Miss Hester Moffat, the rest of me. She's figured out it's an anagram. Once she solves the riddle, he shoots out a a towel so she can dry off from the rain, which is very thoughtful of him. She asks, whose head is this? (laughs) Which is a very reasonable question. But instead, he asks her to tell him more about Buffalo Bill, which she denies. So he lets up some information that his name is Benjamin Raspill, the guy whose head was in a jar. And he didn't find out he was dead until he missed three appointments with him. He just tucked him away, but he was not responsible for his murder. Then Lecter tries to derail the conversation, asking if Crawford wants Clarice sexually, trying to like get to her, but Clarice doesn't seem discomforted, redirects it and says, you know, you're saying something that Miggs would say, which I think insults him. Mm-hmm. He says, not anymore, which <laughs> is telling, true. <laughs> true, but which is also telling that he might be responsible for Miggs' death. The lights go on and it is shown that his drawings got taken away as punishment for him maybe helping kill Miggs. So Hannibal Lecter goes on to say that he doesn't want to be under Dr. Chilton's control anymore. He wants a room with a view and to be out of the same room he's been locked in for eight years. So he says, I'll give you a psychological profile of Buffalo Bill based on the case evidence and I'll help you catch him if you get me transferred. So there is a little bit of a trade happening here. And I wrote, cut to the beginning of Urban Legend, LOL. Yeah, some dude pulling some Ted Bundy shit. Well, her singing American Girl in the car, like just screaming, like on the countryside road. Fun fact, I hate the song American Girl by Tom Petty. That's okay. I work at a place where I hear it a lot (laughs) and I just don't like it at all. So I was like, fuck this intro to this character. I want her to die, but she doesn't. (laughs) Well, this is Catherine Martin, which we find out later. But at this time, she's an unnamed woman who gets back to her apartment, is about to key in, but she sees some guy on the side of the parking lot trying to get a sofa into his car. He has an injured arm. He asks this woman for help. She helps him load the sofa. Somehow in the moment, he gets her to load the sofa into the van. Like she backs up into the van so that he can basically end up using the sofa as a battering ram to shove into her, incapacitate her long enough to knock her out and ends up abducting her. And we can get the sense that this is Buffalo Bill and he has just abducted another woman. And he does ask if she's about a size 14 before he does it. So it's interesting that like he has a certain agenda about him. 
So back in Virginia, Clarice is pulled from her training once again to accompany Crawford to West Virginia, where the body of Buffalo Bill's most recently discovered victim currently is. So this isn't the same woman that was just kidnapped. This is a different woman who has now been found. So in the plane taking them to town, Crawford asks Clarice what she sees in the file on Buffalo Bill. She is able to try to do some criminal profiling where she assumes that Buffalo Bill is male, white, and that he's clearly getting better at his work since he has, quote, developed a taste for it. So she's getting the sense that this man is good at what he does, he's getting better at it, and there's no end in sight unless they themselves are able to stop him. Meanwhile, they arrive at the coroner's office, which is in the basement of a funeral home, and there is currently a funeral going on, but she arrives with Crawford to check out the body in the basement. This is an interesting moment that I think mirrors some of the scenes we've seen earlier with her at Quantico, where Clarice enters this foyer of large male police officers. And this is also interesting where we see some POV shots from her perspective. So looking up at these men who in turn are looking down at her. So not only looking down at her because she's shorter than them, but I think we're also getting the sense metaphorically because she's a woman and there's a perception that maybe she shouldn't belong in this kind of work. And that actually comes into play in this scene because when they do arrive in the foyer and these police officers are standing by, Crawford himself asks the coroner to have a conversation with him separate from Clarice because he doesn't think she should hear certain gruesome aspects of the case, which is, of course, very sexist and not at all what Clarice deserves because of her standing in this case. She has become a very crucial person in this investigation, but she's left in this foyer full of gaping men, not privy to the information that Crawford is about to get from the coroner. So instead, she observes the funeral that's happening. And in like this little dreamlike sequence, she walks in and towards the open casket to see the body of her father. We realize that she's having a flashback to her youth, that her father was perhaps killed in action, but she is awoken and called away, snaps out of it, and ends up being the one to have to dismiss a bunch of crowding cops from the morgue, which they begrudgingly listen to. They examine the body, and Clarice is hesitant to look, but ends up looking. And when she does, she begins narrating the damage for the record. Clarice knows that there's something in her throat. So when they go to pull it out, they pull out a bug cocoon that must have been placed there intentionally. When they flip her over, they see that there's two flanks of her skin removed from her back in a very specific shape, two diamond shapes. So they take note of this. And on the way back, Crawford notes that it really burned her when they didn't talk about the case in front of her. Clarice notes that cops look to him on how to act, so it matters how he treats her in public, and he seems to accept this as fact. So later, Clarice enters a museum to find two nerds playing chess with bugs, lol. (laughs) Obviously, one of them hits on her. She gets hit on so much in this movie. They examine the bug cocoon that they found in this woman's throat, and they find out that it's a death heads moth native to Asia, and that those cocoons had to have been imported and kept warm. So it's somebody who really cares to keep these kinds of bugs alive. Cut to a collection of them flying around a lair and loud music muffling a woman screaming for help. We see a lot of B-roll of mannequins with outfits and dresses as a man sits naked sewing and a dog looks down into a pit where the screams are coming from. 
Meanwhile, back at Quantico, news has started to spread of Catherine Martin's kidnapping. And it is sweeping the country, not only because this is another person who is speculated to be taken by Buffalo Bill, but because she is the daughter of United States Senator Ruth Martin. And we see a scene where Ruth Martin pleads on the news live for the return of her daughter. She's using Catherine's name many times. She's trying to humanize her daughter with little anecdotes about who Catherine is, what she likes, things like that. Meanwhile, Clarice returns once again to Hannibal Lecter's cell and presents a deal that promises him a prison transfer if he provides information that helps profile Buffalo Bill and then in turn lead to finding him and rescuing Catherine Martin. Because of course, now that this is such a high profile case, because this is a senator's daughter we're dealing with, this becomes more like the clock is ticking, we need to move fast. But instead, Hannibal Lecter, because nothing is ever easy with him, begins a game of what he calls quid pro quo, which means for every question he answers, Clarice must answer a question that he asks. He says, yes, of course, I will offer clues and insights about Buffalo Bill in exchange for information about Clarice herself and her childhood. This is where we learn from Clarice something that we could have already assumed, which is, yes, her father was murdered when she was a young girl. After she answers that question, she asks about the moth, which is also one that was found in Benjamin Raspill's head. Okay, so there's a clear connection between this moth and these cases decades apart. Lecter's turn. He advocates for more conversation about Clarice, more questions asked, more answers, then we're back to Buffalo Bill, and he advises Clarice to look into rejected applications for gender reassignment surgery at any of the three hospitals on the East Coast that provide the surgery. And this is rooted in the idea that A, Benjamin Raspel's head is found in makeup. And Hannibal Lecter mentions that the makeup on Benjamin Raspel's head suggests that the person who did kill him was experimenting with feminizing his corpse, which may imply that Buffalo Bill himself is experimenting with gender, gender representation as well. And now, of course, if you didn't already know this going into listening to this episode about the movie, one of, if not the biggest critiques of this film is the way that it handles conversations surrounding gender, gender representation, and of course, queerness and transness, which is something we're going to get into more later in our post-plot reading and things like that. But here is where it really starts to come up in conversation in the film. Yeah, he goes on to say, Our Billy wasn't born a criminal. He was made one by years of systemic abuse. Billy hates his own identity, you see, and he thinks that makes him a transsexual. But his pathology is a thousand times more savage and terrifying. So obviously, we have the usage of the term transsexual, which is obviously very dated, but it's used as a quote in the movie, which is why I said it. And the idea that his pathology is a thousand times more savage and terrifying, which is creating the idea that being trans or transsexual in this context is savage and terrifying, which it's not. So like there's a lot of things to unpack here, which I think we will do better toward the end of the movie. For the sake of continuity, we're going to be talking about Buffalo Bill slash John Grant slash Jamie Gum slash something friend, right? I can't remember. Yeah, he really does have. He has so, so right. He has so many aliases, but we're going to be using he him pronouns for the sake of continuity, not to question this person's gender identity. He's a character in a movie. We'll talk about it later. So, we are back to Catherine and Buffalo Bill's lair. 
She is in a hole underground. It looks like a well without any water in it. Like you see there's like stones packed along the side. It's a circular space. And Buffalo Bill is disregarding her screams to please release her. He doesn't seem phased by it, but he's asking her to put on lotion. Meanwhile, a manhunt begins. So next we see Dr. Chilton talking to Hannibal Lecter. He's teasing him saying, you still think you're going to walk on a beach and see some birdies? No, I don't think so. He said that he called the senator and that they never heard of any deal, which means that Clarice was blowing smoke up his ass and there wasn't actually a deal for his transfer. Clarice is just trying to get information out of him, aka the FBI scammed him. He is restrained by Barney in a full body restraint, but notices as Dr. Chilton leaves his pen behind in his cell as he continues to goad him and demands to know who Buffalo Bill is. Hannibal Lecter reveals that Buffalo Bill's first name is Lewis, but won't say anything else until he is in Tennessee. Oh yeah, Lewis friend. Lewis friend. There <laughs> we go. We figured it out. So meanwhile, they fly Buffalo Bill to Tennessee. They have him in a straitjacket with a face mask on to prevent him from attacking anybody, which he, of course, has a reputation for doing at this point. He meets with Senator Martin and all of her FBI agents that she has brought with her in an aircraft hangar. She asks him for any information about her daughter. But Lecter, we know this man loves games. He decides instead to insult the senator. He asks her if she breastfed her daughter. Martin confirms that, yes, she had. But then, of course, that leads Lecter to make comments to her about the closeness between them. Of course, he's preying on this poor mother's sadness and anxiety over her daughter being kidnapped. Lecter is then taken back to someplace in Baltimore where he is set up in a temporary cell and he is eventually led to reveal the rest of Buffalo Bill's identity, which at this time we think is correct when he says the last name is Lewis Friend and he was lovers with Benjamin Raspill and Benjamin Raspill, again, the man with his head in the jar, was Lecter's patient. So the reason Hannibal Lecter knows a little bit about Buffalo Bill is because Raspill was his patient. And he kind of pieced some things together in the sessions he had with Raspill before Raspill was murdered, which I didn't realize that for, I had to like look that up because I was not following, but that's what's going on. Yeah, there's a lot there. <laughs> I also love the little teasing of love your suit. And that gives like oh. a little bit of a tease as to what Buffalo Bill's pathology oh. is. Did you catch that? No. I didn't realize I just it until it was later. It's such like a sassy thing to say. Love your suit. But it's like the idea that like he knew that Buffalo Bill was building like a suit. A literal suit. A literal of suit. Yeah. And this is where the cannibalism comes in because mm-hmm. you might have forgotten by now. Or maybe not, because Hannibal Lecter is a cannibal. Hannibal the cannibal. There is cannibalism to be explored, even though we don't really see much of it in this movie, right? Not much of it. There's more of it that comes about in Hannibal, which is the sequel. We know Dr. Lecter to be a cannibal, and we get a little bit more of that in a scene to come, but not in like as visceral of a way as you would expect. We see that Dr. Chilton is taking on the press as Clarice sneaks by to make a visit with Hannibal Lecter. She begins deconstructing the Lewis friend anagram as she is taken to his holding place and there is almost like a large bird cage in the middle of a gymnasium. I didn't know how else to describe it because it's literally just like It's like a huge lobby. It's a huge lobby, it's but there's kind just of baller. It is, but there's just a huge like cell created in the middle of it. You know what it reminds me of? What? The music video for Miley Cyrus's I Can't Be Tamed. Oh my god, I love that music video. <laughs> 
that music video changed lives. Oh, changed mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> Here we get the infamous misquoting where he says, good evening, Clarice. But everyone thinks he says, hello, Clarice. Oh, yeah. That's like a whole like misquote thing. There's more talk of anagrams. I don't know exactly what their cause and effects were. But after a lot of back and forths, he forces her to tell him more about the ranch that she stayed on after her father died. She goes on to tell about an experience where she awoke in the morning to hear screaming. She looked in the barn to see lambs screaming as they were about to be slaughtered. She took one and ran away in the cold, but the sheriff ended up finding her. And after that, her lamb was killed and she was sent to an orphanage. Hannibal says, and you think if Catherine lives, you won't wake up in the dark ever again to that awful screaming of the lambs. So he is getting inside her head. She is doing the exact opposite of what Crawford told her to do to not tell him anything personal, to not let him in her head. The police and Dr. Shilton enter to forcefully remove Clarice, but Hannibal manages to hand her a case file that he says has all of the answers to what she's looking for and caresses her finger before she's taken away. So she flies back to Virginia defeated. We see that Hannibal is drawing pictures of Clarice with some lambs. He ordered some lamb chops extra rare. Oh my gosh. And there's a sequence of as the guards open the door to serve him dinner, he had taken part of that pen that he stole from his cell after Chilton left it there and uses that part of the pen to unlock his handcuffs, attack the two guards that brought him dinner, bite off one of them's face, bludgeon one and pepper spray the other and use that to aid in his escape. Yeah. So at first it seems like, and it seems like to the officers that Hannibal Lecter has escaped. And when they arrive on that floor where Lecter's cage is, they see one who is suspended in air spread with wings, maybe made of fabric or flesh like a moth itself. And then there's a police officer who is barely living on the ground. And they think that Lecter is somewhere about the building and they need to find him. But the plot twist is that Hannibal Lecter, always so comfortable with dealing with other people's flesh, which maybe you should just leave it alone, Lecter. (laughs) He cut off one of the police officer's faces, put it on his own so that he would be evacuated from the building in an ambulance. And he left a bleeding body on top of the elevator that people then discovered and thought was his, but it was really the other dead officers and Lecter was able to escape via ambulance, kill the EMTs on the job and run free. And nobody knows where he ends up being. This is one of the movies that I saw before we covered for this podcast, because in a lot of ways, it feels a lot like a thriller. I actually think I watched it with you. You did. So I remember seeing this and not knowing this twist was coming and being like, whoa, that's a moment right there. So later, Clarice is notified of Lecter's escape. Ardelia is the one who tells her, but Clarice does not seem nervous. She is not convinced that Lecter will come after her. Instead, she looks at her case file. Of course, because this is one of her biggest resources, she knows she's not going to find him anytime soon. So she pours over this Buffalo Bill case file. She analyzes Lecter's annotations that he left on the case file for her before he escaped. And they're trying to analyze the data of where the bodies were found. It seems really random, but they realize that a difference in the bodies that were found, I think there's maybe four or five or six at this point, 
The first victim wasn't the first to be found because she was weighted down in water. And so thinking back to the conversation she had with Lecter about trying to simplify the case and going after the most obvious answers, they realized that Buffalo Bill must be coveting what he sees. He must have known the first victim, Federica Bimmel. Clarice goes back to interview Federica's father to try to get more information about who she was, hoping that it can loop her back to this killer that is on the loose. After looking about all of Frederica's stuff, she ends up finding a dress with material cut out of the back of the dress in the same pattern that were cut out of the skin on her back. Yeah, those two elongated diamonds. Clarice calls Crawford to tell him, listen, he must be a tailor or a dressmaker and that he is making a suit out of women's bodies. She surmises that Buffalo Bill keeps them alive long enough to starve them so that their skin loosens. And Crawford's like, Clarice, slow down. We know who he is. We cross-referenced all the known offenders with a list from John Hopkins, which was one of the hospitals, to find a John Grant, a.k.a. Jamie Gum." Clarice is upset that they won't be there for the arrest because they're already on their way. But Crawford gives her the credit that she deserves and says, just keep following up on Frederica's contacts. We're then cut to a different scene where Catherine is trying to lure Precious, which is Buffalo Bill's dog, down into the pit with her to use as leverage. She tries but fails to knock Precious into the pit with a bucket. This is where we get the infamous goodbye horses dancing scene where Buffalo Bill dances tucked naked in the mirror to goodbye horses with a lot of fabric. He says, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me hard. I'd fuck me so hard. So like you can tell that Buffalo Bill's playing with gender, gender expression, how they see themselves. They're dancing in the mirror. They obviously feel very attractive. This is a scene that's been obviously like made fun of and referenced a lot in pop culture, but I think it's really showing Buffalo Bill's dysphoria in some sort of sense. So Clarice ends up talking to a friend of Frederica. This friend says that they used to do alterations together for a woman in the neighborhood. Clarice gets this person's name like, okay, maybe I should follow up with this woman. So like Shay said, Catherine is kind of hatching this plan to lure Buffalo Bill's dog into the hole with her, which she ends up seceding in. So of course, that interrupts the dance that's going on. Buffalo Bill is very upset. He is arguing with Catherine. He has a gun in his hand, threatening to shoot her if she doesn't give Precious the dog back. Catherine's like, just let me out. I'll give you the dog. There's this arguing going on. And meanwhile, Clarice had had this conversation with Crawford where Crawford confirmed that they were about to go get this guy. They knew where he was living. They were going to the house. So it seems like the SWAT team is about to arrive at Buffalo Bill's house. But when the doorbell rings and Buffalo Bill is obviously distracted from this fight that he was having with Catherine and he goes upstairs and opens the door, it's not the SWAT team and their elaborate plan that they have. It's freaking Clarice, because Clarice got the name of Federica's old boss when she was a seamstress. So she went to that house to interview her. And of course, now it's Buffalo Bill that's answering the door. So it's not the well-equipped, planned out SWAT team moment. It's poor Clarice Starling working these interviews on her own. And little does she know, at least at this time, that she has found this serial killer. 
Fun fact. So again, the actress who plays Catherine Brooksmith and Ted Levine, who played Buffalo Bill, they were actually so close on the set that Jodie Foster used to refer to Brooksmith as Patty Hearst. You should read about her. She's really interesting. But the social lore is that she fell in love with her kidnapper. (laughs) So I just like the idea that even in this scene, which is so brutal and Buffalo Bill is keeping Catherine locked up in that hole. In real life, the actors were actually really good friends. So anyway, Clarice Starling is now in the house of Buffalo Bill. She is looking around the space. She's noticing moths. She's noticing that the house is a little bit unkempt. I don't know what she's... She's noticing like several things. Does she notice like guns? Spools of thread. Spools of thread. And the moths flying around. And the moths. So she's quickly able to put together the pieces that she has found something She asks, Mr. Grant, can I use your phone? And at first he says, yes. But then she lifts up her pistol. She says, freeze. And he disappears down into the basement. So she pursues him. She has to clear several rooms. And this is like, oh my God. This is like my least favorite basement. Like anytime there's a basement that has seven rooms, (laughs) get out of here. Barbarian. Yeah. It had endless rooms. Endless rooms. And look, you know, I don't love an open floor plan. I like the coziness (laughs) of various rooms. But a basement should always be an open floor plan. And in this case, it's not. So Clarice has to clear many rooms. Just when we think she might get a handle on the situation, she stumbles into the basement bathroom and sees a rotting body in the bathtub, which we can assume was the old seamstress who might have lived there before Grant murdered her and took over her homestead. And before she can even cope with that, the lights go out. The power has been cut. Yeah, so then we get a return to this night vision goggles that we kind of got when Catherine was first abducted. We saw her being stalked from afar with these night vision goggles of sorts. We see Clarice moving throughout the basement in the darkness as Buffalo Bill is like reaching out, almost touching her face, almost touching her hair. Buffalo Bill holds up a gun, cocks it in her direction, but Clarice swings around just in time to shoot him first. The FBI arrive. Catherine and Precious are both okay. Later, we see Clarice graduating from the Academy. Crawford congratulates her, says her father would have been proud, and tells her that she has a phone call. When she answers the phone, we hear a very familiar voice on the other end saying, Well, Clarice, have the lambs stopped screaming? Lecter tells her that he doesn't plan on calling on her and that he hopes for the same courtesy. So like, if you don't come after me, I won't come after you and says that he's having an old friend for dinner. (laughs) Just in time to see Dr. Shilton get off a plane and walk into the streets of a different country. I don't know where exactly they are. Something like that. Yeah. But Dr. Lecter is definitely incognito. He's wearing a wig. He's wearing like (laughs) a cream suit. No, he does not look very good. (laughs) I love this long tracking shot as the credits play as Dr. Lecter just trails Dr. Chilton from behind in the crowd, showing that he's going to make revenge for Dr. Chilton's treatment of him while he was in the facility. He hangs up on Clarice as she's screaming, Dr. Lecter, Dr. Lecter, and she has no closure on the event. Dr. Lecter is still very much at large, and that's the end of the movie. Okay, so let's get into the post-plot, because we have a lot of things to discuss, and especially because this movie is from 1991. You know, this movie's been around long enough that there are several conversations surrounding the film. So we're going to start with an essay by Diane Du Bois from 2001, titled Seeing the Female Body Differently, Gender Issues in the Silence of the Lambs. 
So she discusses several ways that the film challenged genre conventions and gender expectations at the time of its release in 1991. Typically, themes of, quote, voyeurism, the male gaze of the camera, castration anxiety, and the confused and reinstated gender identities typical of the serial killer movie. So beginning with the voyeuristic male gaze, Du Bois writes, quote, The voyeuristic role of the spectator has been a subject of interest to feminist critics since the publication of Laura Mulvey's seminal essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, from 1975. The essay claims that cinema functions as a site of patriarchal power where the male voyeur can feel in control of the celluloid image caught in his gaze. This possession and control of the female by the male gaze becomes, in the storyline of the serial killer movie, with its typically female victim and male killer, a more literal kind of body possession. So, in this genre, the gender politics of film are intensified. According to Mulvey, the audience is supposed to take pleasure in watching a woman in danger who lacks the resources to help herself. The audience members view the heroine through the male gaze of the camera and so take on any or all of the traditional male roles of sympathetic rescuer, conquering rapist slash killer, or ogling voyeur. All three positions regarding the heroine require our superiority to her. Now, taking this idea, this male gaze, this voyeuristic camera, Du Bois goes on to mention several ways the Silence of the Lambs itself and Starling's character avoids succumbing to this template of a predatory gaze. So for one, she discusses Starling's strength in the opening scene of the film. Quote, Clarice Starling, a woman alone running breathlessly through the woods, is read as convention instructs us that she is about to become a victim. However, as the title sequence proceeds, the film turns our convention-fueled expectations around as Starling's strength, determination, and ability begin to impress us. We see her as an isolated female in the FBI Academy, literally patriarchal law surrounded by tall, uniformly dressed men in an elevator as she heads toward the office of her paternal boss, Jack Crawford. By the time she has been dispatched by Crawford to interview the incarcerated Dr. Hannibal Lecter, she has been established as impressively able and ambitious. We want her to succeed, despite and not because of the patriarchal institution which contains her. In a film which constantly emphasizes the subtle and insidious pressures men put upon women with their gaze, Starling is constantly ogled, chatted up, towered over, sexually harassed, and made to feel like a freak when she does not respond in the preferred, coyly, feminine manner. To emphasize this, Dem deliberately, Dem the director, deliberately chooses to give the audience shots that correspond with Starling's point of view. I didn't realize at first how much of this film is filmed as if we are looking through her eyes. Yeah, like how towering these men are and how much more intimidating it seems when, yeah, you're being ogled at or you're being flirted with. Du Bois mentions other examples where Starling subverts this kind of masculine gaze, including the inmate that whispers, I can smell your cunt, and Starling's response that undermines the inmate's asserted masculinity, leading him to throw his semen at her again in that later scene. Du Bois mentions another example when Crawford asserts that some things cannot be discussed in front of a woman, saying that, quote, Crawford leaves Starling surrounded by a group of male deputies who stare at her with a mixture of desire and sneering superiority. 
Because we are treated to Starling's point of view, the audience is forced to experience how it feels to be stared at rather than simply do the staring. Starling later complains to Crawford about this, and one feels that the lesson is as much for the benefit of the film's audience as it is for Crawford. So continuing on with how this film challenges the male gaze, Du Bois mentions scholar Linda Williams and her assertions about what usually happens to strong female characters in films. Quote, according to Linda Williams, 1984, when the woman turns herself from passive recipient of the gaze into active looker, she's usually punished for this potentially subversive act. One thinks of the many instances in films where the woman, having heard a noise, looks down in the basement or behind the door and is promptly murdered, seemingly for daring to do so. Starling, however, is not punished for looking, whether she is examining Lecter or looking for clues. Unlike so many other inquisitive heroines, Starling descends into the basement to talk to Lecter or to confront Gum, in both cases getting the positive results she went seeking. Conventionally, the woman who rejects her passive, quote, to be looked at-ness in order to become an active looker is a threat to patriarchy and must be destroyed. When Starling descends into Gum's basement to rescue the senator's daughter, the quickest way to disempower her is to plunge the basement into darkness for a terrifying instant we, like Starling, cannot see. Then Gum dons his infrared spectacles, and we are treated to the generically familiar shot from the point of view of the killer, or the frightened and seemingly doomed female who does not know she's being watched and lacks the power to return the killer's look. Starling's eyes, strikingly wide open throughout the sequence, suggest her overwhelming desire to do just that. However, in the neat deconstruction of the usual ending of such a scene, Starling whirls around to face the camera. She shoots not only gum, but us, challenging the way in which films of this genre typically cast the audience as partners in crime. Hmm... Yeah, so I didn't realize, as far as cinematography goes, how innovative the camera was in kind of helping support Clarice as this feminist person, not only in what she was doing, but also the perspective that the audience was taking. This finally leads us to themes of castration anxiety in Buffalo Bill's characterization specifically. So keeping in mind this article is from 2001, it may not be surprising that Du Bois misses the opportunity to address more nuances of harmful representation of queer and trans individuals. She acknowledges this reality that the film could have been problematic influences on the perception of LGBTQ folk, but she asserts Buffalo Bill's gender performance comes not from a place of wanting to transition into a woman, but hating women and fearing his own Freudian castration. So she explains this rooted directly in Hannibal Lecter's dialogue, where he somehow does some kind of movie doctor thing where he's able to know nothing about a person and still make these calls. So Du Bois references the scene, of course, where Buffalo Bill dances in front of the mirror and tucks his genitals between his legs. And she writes, quote, in tucking his genitals away, Gum has affected a painless castration. The pain of the transformation, along with Gum's feelings of victimization, are transferred onto his female victims where they belong, foregrounding how serial killer movies typically encode women as vehicles for male fears of suffering and punishment. She goes on a little bit more with this theory, and while I think this is an interesting lens through which to look at Buffalo Bill, especially because it has connections to Hannibal Lecter's more bookish understanding of who Buffalo Bill is, I think that there are immediate surface level problems to this, not only, of course, in like the issues of LGBT representation, 
But also, like, you'd have to know a lot about what castration theory even was. Like, you would have to do a lot of reading this. I don't know, like, this just doesn't feel like an accessible theory to me, but I wanted to put it out there because, A, I liked a lot what she said earlier about Clarice Starling and how she challenged genre expectations for how cinema views women in films like this. But I also wanted to include this because it's what she said, but B, because it does help us eventually go into our next source, which directly kind of contradicts this idea where somebody literally kind of like looking at this film and taking it word for word. Well, it's not supposed to be harmful to trans folks or queer folks. And I think that's what she's trying to say. But at the end of the day, there are a lot of other sources out there and people talking about their personal experiences as LGBTQ folks, specifically trans folks who have experienced negative repercussions from this film. To her point, we don't see as many clues to Buffalo Bill's characterization that he identifies a certain way insofar as we see, for example, Angela from Sleepaway Camp identifying as a trans girl or using she, her pronouns or all of those types of things. Like the things we see from Buffalo Bill are... Making a woman's skin suit. Yep. Which, like, Ed Gein, okay, like, anybody yep. could do, right? <laughs> anybody could do. I don't want to say anybody could do, but, like, <laughs> anybody with some, <laughs> you know, depraved sense of what you get your kicks out of could do. And we see Buffalo Bill dancing in front of a mirror. But I don't think either of those things denotes a declaration of trans identity. The only thing that we get is Dr. Lecter's perception or Dr. Lecter's presumption that this person could have been denied for gender affirmation surgery. But I don't know that we ever get concrete evidence that that was the case for Jamie Gum. Or do we? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is the James Grant name. Because isn't that who Crawford went to look for in the fake out SWAT team invasion? We think Crawford is about to arrive at Buffalo Bills, but it turns out it's Clarice Starling arriving. Yes, that I guess would presume that there was some interest or some inquiry into that level of transition, Mm -hmm. I guess. But that still begs the question that medical intervention and transition dictates a certain identity moniker, which I get is a lot more nuanced than the 1991 perception or the 1991 discussion like had to unpack in that situation. And obviously, I think if we're looking at the time, if we're looking at the scare factor here, they are again using that, oh my goodness, this person does not identify as cisgender, isn't that scary as their scare factor, right? I'm not trying to take away from that impact of the movie. But there is a lot more gray area in Buffalo Bill as a character. There's a lot of different ways to read him. Right. So let me get into my second source. So this is from Harmony M. Colangelo's 2021 Shutter blog post titled, The Lambs Still Scream, Reanalyzing Silence of the Lambs. So Colangelo is a trans woman who reflects on how Silence of the Lambs impacted the public's perceptions of LGBTQ folks, mainly trans folks, and her personal experiences navigating these negative perceptions. She acknowledges the feats of the film, but argues society has outgrown it in the 30 years since the film's release. Her first point is about Clarice as a feminist icon. Colangelo writes, quote, Clarice herself is a very strong, important character, and Silence of the Lambs itself is masterfully made. However, a lot has changed since the early 90s, and we as a society need to graduate past characters like her 
yes, she followed her intuition and succeeded in spite of all her condescending sexualizing male colleagues. She was even proved to be better than them by solving the case before graduating from the FBI Academy. But that is exactly why we should not be rooting for a character like her in this day and age. Clarice is a cog in a very destructive machine, end quote. Colangelo asserts that Clarice's role in law enforcement in a problematic discriminatory system in need of reform prevents her from maintaining heroin status. She also asserts that whether or not Buffalo Bill is trans doesn't matter because society at large reads the character as such, and she doesn't love the, quote, continued championing of a cop whose reputation was made by killing a trans woman. And I thought that that was a really impactful point because it seemed like sources from maybe like the early 2000s or even 90s focused on, no, 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 this is what the film was trying to do. Whereas Colangelo was like, yes, but this is what it's doing. This is how people read it. It's intent versus impact. Yes. So as far as her personal experiences go navigating a world post-Silence of the Lambs, Colangelo writes, quote, I do not know what it's like to live in a world without this movie and it casts a long shadow. Even more as someone who is intimately familiar with many small Ohio towns, like where Bill's House of Horrors resides. At its base level, this is a story of Clarice Starling versus Buffalo Bill. But long before the start of the film, and all the way through its final confrontation, this is about Jamie Gum against the world. Short of the climax of the film, Jamie is completely removed from the rest of the characters and the story. And by the way, this character uses they them pronouns for Jamie Gum. They live in their dilapidated house, carrying out their demented tasks while being completely unaware of the characters we follow for the rest of the movie. They exist removed from character interactions and society because they were put there. One of the saddest things about this, though, is that in a better system and under different circumstances, Clarice Starling would have been the perfect person to help Jamie. Clarice has proven that she is intuitive, empathetic, smart, and in a reformed police force with social-emotional training, she could have actually helped Jamie without killing him. That isn't the kind of agent she was trained to be, and that wasn't the story being told here. I can't imagine yet another prestige crime drama show is going to do that either. Jonathan Demme's directing, the performance of the cast, and the widespread introduction to a character as fascinating as Hannibal Lecter all shine, even after 30 years. But the real dark figure that I'm trapped in a pitch black basement with is every experience I've had where people compare me to Buffalo Bill snicker as they've asked me if, quote, I'd fuck me so hard, or generally see me as some sort of threat directly because of this film. Silence of the Lambs swept the Academy Awards, went on to be one of the most critically praised films of the decade, and has transcendental status even outside the film. It is not ignorable, and what makes it so compelling doesn't work in 2021. If we are going to look back at this film, then we need to really look at it and accept that the true horror of Silence of the Lambs is what lingers after the credits roll. It's like interesting that the point that the director or the writer was looking to make was of Hannibal Lecter's pathology and his unique positioning as a doctor of psychology, also cannibal, also murderer. And that Buffalo Bill was just supposed to be the big bad. And what made this person the big bad was this scary thing that would, in theory, be universally confusing to everybody, right? Like, oh my god, this person that cross-dresses, or oh my god, this person that dances to goodbye horses in the mirror with their genitals tucked, right? 
And again, I mean, we talked about this a lot in Sleepaway Camp, where it's like, this was meant to be shock factor and not necessarily a point of representation for any group of people, but it ended up being that way. It wasn't the intent, it was the impact of it. And Buffalo Bill, resoundingly, is a lot of people's first interaction with a trans character. And if their first interaction with a trans character is somebody who skins women and murders them... That's not a good first introduction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So obviously this movie sits in a very weird positioning in queer and trans culture of a reference point of a darker time of misunderstanding for queer and trans populations. But very similar to other movies that we've covered, are trans people talked about in society, in cinema, in culture without a reference point, despite how bad the reference point is? And again, it's that age-old question that I thought about with Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is bad representation better than any representation, period. Because obviously everybody has a reference point, but what would the reference point been had it not been Silence of the Lambs? Could have been worse than this? Probably. But could have been better than this? Absolutely. 100%. So obviously everybody has the license to feel how they feel. It just disappoints me that the thing that's remembered about this movie is not the nuance of a character like Clarice Starling and her determination, even if it's within a system that's problematic, right? But even if for its time, like seeing somebody of the final girl level, as Jodie Foster played in this movie, it's Buffalo Bill and the confusion that surrounds their character, right? Right. It's obviously something that can be discussed for hours and hours on end, but it's a movie I'm glad exists because it's causing discussion for that reason. Obviously not at the expense of trans women because trans women, especially in the horror genre, especially in society, especially in America, have enough to deal with. But like, what does the discussion look like absent of Silence of the Lambs? I don't know, because I feel like it sparked it for a lot of people. I agree. And I think it's something to, you know, for those out there that maybe don't believe that there's a conversation to be have or are reluctant to have this conversation about trans representation, like this is something that people can point to and say, oh, well, I'm sure you know this movie. Here's where the conversation can start. It's one of many films that created a violent image surrounding trans folk, which was true to the time, like Hollywood making decisions based on what was acceptable. And it is, I think, as a society who I hope we're moving forward, we can at least look back on and hopefully, hopefully feel like we are making progress past these kinds of representations. We are holding ourselves accountable to make sure that we are adequately representing people, that we are not pigeonholing them into one kind of stereotype. We can't have one kind of narrative. It's just the way that bias and prejudice is harbored and spread. This movie is here, and I agree with you. The conversation is happening. It is here. Three decades worth of information you can read about, about the changing conversation as well. And it's from like kind of like a sociological standpoint, it is interesting to see that rapidly changing conversation. But as far as Cannibal Power Hour goes, I think this is one of the headliner films that folks think about when they think about cannibalism because of Hannibal Lecter and who he is and what his character brought to the mainstream, as well as all of these other things that this movie brought with it as well. Which is so interesting because it's not even really explored in this movie at all. (laughs) It's just part of his characterization. We see a little bit more of it in Hannibal, 
and obviously a little bit more of it in Red Dragon, which is the prequel, but we just know his characterization from what we're told, which I think is also so interesting because I feel like this is one of the only cannibal movies that we see where we don't necessarily see like the practice in it. We don't see the reasoning behind it. We're just meant to see Hannibal Lecter as this unfeeling, undeterred, willing to do anything type of character. And that's what feeds his consumption in a little bit of a way. For now, he's just the iconic Hannibal the Cannibal. Yeah. And I love that his name rhymes. (laughs) I wonder if that was on purpose. I wonder if the original writer was like, you know what? I want to name my guy something that rhymes with cannibal. But who is named Hannibal? That's what I want to know. I don't know. I've never met anybody named Hannibal. Should we look at thebump.com and see where it, see where <laughs> oh, it tracks? Oh, my favorite website, thebump.com. <laughs> Ooh, let's bring it back. <laughs> that was The Silence of the Lambs, at least the tip of the iceberg, because as always, we are amateurs who love to explore and do our best. But if there is anything you feel like we missed or any part of the conversation you would like to participate in, please feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And or if you would like to stay up to date with what we're doing, episode posts, polls, things like that, please follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.